Hey, welcome to the NATO Sessions. I'm NATO Green. On this edition of the NATO Sessions, my guest is stand-up comedian, podcast host, and actor Mark Marin. Join me in conversation with Marin during his recent stop in San Francisco to promote his memoir, Attempting Normal. Uh, today, my guest is comedian Mark Marin. Marin has been a, a stand-up comic for many, many years and is all over the place right now, of course, with his amazing podcast, WTF with Mark Marin, and his TV show, Marin on IFC, and he has a new book out called Attempting Normal, and I was fortunate enough to sit down with him and turn the microphone around, so to speak, and interview him. He was generous enough to be willing to do it. I got to know Marin a few years ago when uh, he is from Albuquerque, and my wife is from Albuquerque, and comedian Alex Cole's father lives near Albuquerque, and Alex is a friend of mine. And so the three of us decided to do a day after Christmas show, a Boxing Day show in Albuquerque, when we were all there visiting family for Christmas. So we rented a, we worked with a theater to do this day after Christmas show, the Cell Theater in Albuquerque, and we had booked the show, and I was in touch with Marin about it. And uh, we had discussed that if the show sold out, we could add a second show. And the theater emails me and says, one patron would like to buy out the house, right? As soon as tickets went on sale, do you want to add a second show? And so I, I forwarded the message to Marin and I said, should we add a second show? And he said, sure. And before I confirmed with the theater, I just had some doubts. And so I wrote back to Marin and I said, are you sure about this? Because, you know, one patron buying it out, like it becomes a private show and not a theater show. And that could be weird. Like when the whole audience is one group of people, it, uh, it sort of changes the whole vibe of the show. And then I had to go into a meeting for some reason, so I turned off my phone. And when I turned my phone back on again an hour later, there were like six emails from Marin and three voicemails and seven text message messages, the sequence of things being like, dude, man, we got to get out of this. I don't want to have uh, like a, do a private show. We can't let this one guy buy out the show. What are we going to do? We got to fix it. I don't want to do it. This is horrible. This is a disaster. What are we going to do, man? Oh, it's my dad. So it turned out that Marin's dad had tried to buy out the entire theater for the first show. It wasn't clear whether he did it to sit there by himself to spite Marin or if he wanted to, like, be a big shot and give out tickets to his friends or what. Like, we had no idea. But then finally we just told the theater, no, Marin's dad cannot buy out the house. So we're dealing with that was how I got to know Marin. We did the shows. We did two shows. They were sold out. They were great. And Marin has been incredibly uh, kind and generous to me since then. Despite his curmudgeonly persona, he is classical Jewish mensch in every possible way. So I was delighted to get to talk to him and start out talking about someone that we both knew in Albuquerque. So check out the NATO sessions with Mark Marin. Marin, thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Uh, the 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 big Jewish moguls asked me to talk to you while you were in town. The, oh, the the power the power Jews of San Francisco. The elders of Zion said of San Francisco that I should kibitz with Marin while he was in town. They use words like kibitz in San Francisco. Oh yeah, the elders of Zion of in, San Francisco. In hushed tones, they do. Yeah. Ah, I don't even know where these people are. What are these? Who are these people you're talking about? Uh, these powerful Jews. You you have to have the right uh, jingle of coins in your pocket to even conjure them. Uh, oh my God! So. And it has to be Hanukkah guilt, preferably not chocolate. Right. Yeah. Mm, got it. So, uh, so then I, I, I'm 
delighted to talk to you and but try to think about what to talk about with the guy who talks about everything mm. and it seemed to me that uh where i wanted to start was that you and i first worked together in albuquerque when we did those shows after christmas right and discovered that we have a person in common and i wanted to ask you about your relationship with gus mm-hmm. and 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 the living batch gus blaisdale yeah living batch bookstore yeah um yeah well the living batch was it used to be a huge bookstore when I was like in my early teens, it took up almost an entire block in Albuquerque. Then the Frontier, you know, bought out that. I don't know if they bought it out. I think that the guy who owned Frontier Restaurant always owned the buildings and wanted to expand his restaurant. So Gus moved the bookstore sort of around the corner into a smaller space. And I started seeing Gus around when, you know, when I was in high school, like, you know, sophomore in high school, we were hanging around the Frontier late at night and just doing the thing. And I also worked down the street at the uh, Posh Bagel, which was a, a, a uh, bagel restaurant owned by a crazy cocaine-addicted lunatic named Eddie. But Gus used to come in there, too. So I knew him. He was this bearded dude. This wizard always seemed to have something. He so, always seemed to know something that uh, no one else did. Uh, that was my feeling. Yeah, I'd he, see him around occasionally. And he had a used bookstore that was named after a, a famous batch of LSD. Is that, I, I didn't even know that. I think That's it's a Kenkazy thing. Page. Oh, really? The living batch is... Yeah. I see. I didn't even do the homework on that. So he used to wander around in his flannel shirts and his khaki uh, shorts and his, uh, you know, in his beard. Right. And, uh, you know, at some point, I think I started going into the living batch. And it was probably, you know, later in high school, you know, probably junior year, and trying to engage him in conversation. Um, you know, and I remember uh, he had a poster up in his, uh, this might have been when I came back. I don't know what the timeline was, but you know, he used to say, you know, he just was had an incredible wit. He was the first guy that I ever realized could, you, that you could be really intelligent and really cutting and very quick. And he had a certain way of, uh, you know, he had a timing and he had uh, very smart jokes. Um, and I remember going to his uh, bookstore and there was a poster up for the Naropa Institute. There was some sort of reunion of beatniks. Uh, and this is probably, you know, in the in the eighties, in the early eighties, maybe nineteen eighty eighty one, if I'm thinking correctly around the timeline. And I was standing in his bookstore, and I'm like, oh, I got to get up there for that, probably, right? And he said, What do you want to hang out with those geriatrics for? You know, why would you want to go put yourself through that with those old guys? And like, I think he had known some of the guys when he was at Stanford. Yeah, but I never got much history for him, the, the, from him. But the, the interesting thing about Gus is that I, eventually he let me kind of sit with him at the Frontier. He would sit. I gave him a ride home once when I was in high school, and I thought that was a huge breakthrough. Me and my friend Devin, like, do you need a ride? And he's like, yeah. And we were like driving the professor home, you know, driving the wizard home. You know, and he made some jokes that were hilarious. And uh, I was just so attached and, and sort of drawn to his intelligence because he was like such a highbrow intellectual like he you know he would write the forwards the Joel Peter Wickham books and he would like write about Lewis Baltz and like I think by the time I went to college like in high school he started letting me hang out and um, like he'd sit with us occasionally and then he'd yawn he'd always yawn that was like you'd be talking he'd be like he'd do this like very dramatic yawn and it was always around three in the afternoon and he talked about circadian rhythms and that he had to go take a nap but that was always part of his shtick was the yawning but just by him listening to us and my friend Devin and I and me specifically because I used to always go try to hang out with him I just wanted him to talk about things uh, because I didn't have any exposure to sort of a you know, an off the cuff kind of um, 
accessible intellectual. Right. You know, that, that this guy was a real cultural critic. You know, he taught film classes. He could teach art classes. You know, he was, you know, preoccupied with photography and painting and, and preoccupied with film. And, uh, and that was, you know, what he taught. So to me, and even the, the way he talked about things, I'd never really heard it before. And it kind of, you know, it, it demanded that you, you sort of like engage on a level of intelligence that, that I wasn't familiar with. And he was able to do that comedically too. He, uh, I, I knew him. He was my wife's best friend's stepfather, and he was close to her dad. And so when I started going to Albuquerque every year when I was 22 to see my in-laws and would always see him until he died, and that was like one of my highlights of visiting Albuquerque was getting into a Gus and like, we, you know, be at the Flying Star, and he would come shuffling in having, you know, stolen magazines and bringing them back. Mm. They would like take New Yorkers and Harpers and stuff to read and then bring them back. And it was the same kind of, you know, like just – Sitting in or sitting in his in his room, listening to like old jazz records, and we're over in the man cave uh, uh, at the house. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like there was like a carriage house or, yeah, 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 or yeah, something yeah. where he had like all these like old jazz CDs. Yeah, he has all kinds of weird comics and and things and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I think that kind of inspired my garage a little bit. I never, you know, I did, it took a long time for me to get into the um, the personal world with him. Like it wasn't until I went to college. And then, like, I'd come home and I'd still, you know, go to the bookstore. And, you know, and he knew I was, you know, interested in comedy and, and writing. And, you know, he would sort of check in with me, you know, um, not in a concerned way, but he'd sort of get a vibe for where I was at. He watched me go through a lot of stuff, but from a distance, because I'd just come back in and I'd always go see him and tell him what was up. You know, and there was periods where I could tell he was a little concerned. I was doing too many drugs. And when I went to L.A. that first time after college, and I came back just beaten up. You know, he sort of knew, you know, that uh, that I was kind of throwing myself against the wall and, and doing stuff. But he was always pretty supportive in his weird way. He'd always say something to me that, that seemed to make sense. Uh, you know, I remember the first time I got into AA to clean up the first time. So that was a, you know, uh, after the LA thing, probably 87. He's like, yeah, yeah you know, you're going to do this, your Christian thing now? And I'm like, no, it's not a Christian thing. He's like, okay, whatever. Yeah, you know, like there was, he wouldn't ever say whatever, but you know, there, he always sort of kept me in check uh, from not getting lost in some bullshit. Uh, did you feel like you were looking for a mentor at that point in your life when you were, started hanging out at the bookstore? Like, did you, like, the, the sort of the serendipity of encountering the right mentor at the right time is like a, a big part of everyone's story who ends up developing creatively or yeah. politically or whatever. Yeah. Did you know that you were cultivating a mentor or did it, did it just sort of. No, no, definitely. You know, I knew my father was, was sort of useless as a guide for me after a certain point and that like you know i would always seek mentors i've had many bad ones i mean i don't say that i don't know that it was like as i was as conscious of it like you know i need a mentor for this stage of my life right but i knew i looked up to that guy a lot and he had something i wanted and i wanted to understand things like he understood things you know i always wanted to be some sort of intellectual and to be sort of a rogue kind of post hippie you know fixture intellectual right was like a life that I could definitely, you know, respect and admire. Like, you know, he seemed to have defined himself on his own terms and had turned away from, uh, you know, becoming stuffy or, or whatever. Like, it seemed like he had his own, you know, way of, of thinking. Right. There was my, my the, the turn of phrase from Gus that always sticks with me the most is, is so wrong, but so funny. It was during the Bush years that we were talking about something, and Condoleezza Rice came up, and he sort of growled like, "Oh, that pickaninny lesbian." Yeah, yeah. And it's like, like so, you know, 
like people would hiss and groan if you say that. It's like I would never say that, but it's just like that's a that's a classy phrase. It's an artful, you know. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there. You know, he he definitely you know didn't attach himself much to politically correctness, but you know he's a pretty sweet guy, you know, pretty sensitive guy. But he had a temper, man. I remember one time I went in the Living Batch, and he lost his shit on me, and it was very upsetting. It was just as if my father had done it. You know, because I probably was needy, probably hanging around too much and pestering him. Like, I would go in there whenever I was in town or even in high school, just hang out. Like, he'd be working in the back and I'd hang out, just sort of like, you know, like wanting to talk to him. Like, just waiting for him to acknowledge me. It was like that. And I feel like with, with relationships like that, and I've had a few at different points in my life, where there's an arc to it and there's a point where you sort of, like, it's like you graduate from that, that relationship you know what I mean, or or it 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 realigns and you become more peers. Mm-hmm. Did you ever reach that point with him? Yeah, but it was a long it was a long arc. Yeah, because I was like this. You know, I was obviously a bright kid and wanting something. You know, and he would turn me on to stuff, and you know, he'd give me books like he gave me that big book on bebop, and he gave me some other stuff to to sort of lick into. That was generally above my my intellectual grade. Like, I can't read Stanley Cavell that well. I mean, you know, and Gus had, you know, edited, I think, Pursuits of Happiness, and Cavell was his guy when it came to movies, but it was, it was beyond me. I'm not sure if it's not still beyond me. But, you know, the poetics of the way he pr- put things together was, was what got me, is that, like, I don't know that I can sit with his writings, many of them, because they're too dense, and they draw from a, a, a kind of a, a lineage of, of criticism that I don't really get. You know, I like, you know, he wrote a lot of stuff on Louis Baltz that I don't quite get. He wrote a piece on Full Metal Jacket that I got a little better. Uh, that I don't remember what magazine that was in. But now that I've got his book, you know, I go into some of it. It's still a little out of my reach because the thing that made me love Gus was his sense of humor, is that it was so cutting and so precise and so well-sourced intellectually that, that that to me was like, that was all of it. And one time... Like, we were talking about this or that. I think we were talking about the Bible and about kids or about where culture was at this point. And I made some joke uh, along the lines of, like, you know, it'll get to the point where people are going to be like, oh, really? The Bible? I've heard of that. Who's in it? You know, that, that. And he, like, got a big laugh. And then he gave me, like, he remembered that line, the Bible, who's in it? Um, and he, he gave me some old kind of self-published piece of his writing, the singularly something monad, which I think is in the thing. And he transcribed it. He said, you know, that line, your line, uh, the Bible's in it, will, you know, you know will, will far transcend any of the darkness explored here. I don't remember how he inscribed it to me. But I couldn't even get, I couldn't fucking put that together. I couldn't understand that writing. And I wanted to so badly. I felt like, you know, I have to understand what he understands in the way he understands it or I'm some sort of intellectual failure. And that was always sort of hanging over me. I never felt worthy. You know, I always felt like he's just going to indulge me. The genius is going to indulge me. But the arced out, like once I got to you know college and once I started showing up on TV and and uh, after I wrote the first book and I'd written about him in it, you know, he read the book and you know, and like the only criticism, like he that whole book, you know, it's okay, but he liked this one section because he he said that was funny. And it was like the only thing in the book, in my mind, that he thought was worth anything. And I've thought about why that was funny uh, a lot. You know, that particular beat in that book was pure comedy. And in, and in my mind, I'm like, I've got to figure out how to do more of that. Um, and I still think about it. And what was it? Um, 
the beat was about like how I had um, we had visited the River Jordan in Israel, me and my first wife and another couple, and we were there at the River Jordan. And then out of nowhere, these Hasidim started just like they were just in the water and they were kind of coming down like body surfing, you know, just riding the waves with their talit on and everything. Right. Yeah. Like they were just having a good time. And I had this moment. I'm like, well, this is where they come from. They're they, pay us waving. Well, they come from the River Jordan. They must yeah. upstream. That must be the well where, where the seeds are <laughs> come out of the ground. You yeah. know, it was sort of that kind of joke. I don't remember the phrasing of it exactly, but he thought that was very funny. And as time has passed, have you had some insight about what, what, what that is that you need to do more of? Well, I think as time goes on and, you know, I, I, I've let myself off the hook a bit that he always appreciated my sense of humor, which was queer from, you know, the Bible, who, who's in it. Mm-hmm. But I, wouldn't, I would always try too hard. Like, and you would try too hard with Gus. You want to get the laugh, and he's a hard laugh. And he'd throw shit out there, and he'd be like, mm. you know, he would like, you know, yawn or do his thing because he knows you're trying too hard. But at some point, I began to trust my intelligence and just let that, that go. I mean, I'm almost 50. I'm probably not going to get you know, Ben Hamin, I'm probably not going to get, you know, Spinoza or Hegel or Kant. I mean, that, those days are behind me. I'm not going to apply myself in that way. I'm not going to be the guy that, you know, can discuss, you know, dialectics or, or, or any of that, you know, but I, I am an intelligent guy who can trust my own instincts now. You, you, you live dialectics. I don't even know what that means. Uh, you know, it's a, your, your life is about the clash of contradictions and the, the propulsive energy created by contradictions to move you forward. Okay. See, I didn't even know that. See, now, now I feel um, like I should go look that up. Uh, if you just told me I live it, that means it has something directly to do with me. I should understand that. It's the only thing that drives me anywhere. You're listening to stand-up comedian, podcaster, and actor Mark Marin on the NATO Sessions, a co-production of 3200stories.org and the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. I'm your host, Nato Green. For more information about the Nato Sessions and to receive new podcasts as they're released, go to 3200stories.org. So we've talked about your move away from Air America yeah. and how you sort of got into the – like, you know I'm a big lefty yeah. and you have those – You're the biggest lefty. Uh you're a genuine lefty. Yeah, well, thank you. Mm. I think you're yeah, genuine lefty socialist. Uh, and you have a lot of those values, but got sort of steeped in that world when yeah. you were in America. And then as a comic, we're not thrilled by the audience that it gave you for your stand-up. And you sort of talked about how you consciously moved away from that. Yeah, I just stopped talking about it because I don't, you know. Like, I still find things fascinating, what aggravates, you know, I can see what aggravates me. And I used to be more political in content, you know, as a stand-up. But I don't know if I love the position anymore. Um, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a posturing that comes with clever political humor that, you know, that I, that I don't know if I want to take. Uh, and I've taken it before. And, and I just don't, you know, I know it, it's, it's okay. And maybe it helps people. I don't know. Usually it just sort of reassures like-minded people uh, in their, you know, in their um, either uh, intelligence or possibly their arrogance or possibly their, their anger. You know, I get all that. And there's no saying that I won't get back to it. Um, 
you know, there's a, there's a mathematics to it. And there's, you know, you have a point of view, you know, here's what's going on in the world that, you know, that you can be angry about. And then, and this is a way you can posit your point of view within, you know, the dialectic of that situation politically. And, um, I also got a little bit disillusioned that, you know, I'm not that nuanced in my political wisdom. You know, I do always, you know, champion the underground, but there's also a bit of a bully in me. You know, I don't, um, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the question, you know, in terms of liberals is like, you know, how, you know, how much do you really care about poor people? You know, and if you don't have a you know, pretty quick answer to that, like a lot, I wish everybody was better and I'd like to help that then, right. you know, you're, you're sort of in a little trouble. But I also ride a line with that stuff. I'm a pretty selfish person. But I became disillusioned with politics because I didn't really understand politics, you know, in terms of how it worked until I started doing Air America. I was just a reactionary guy. You know, I just, you know, I was, you know, classic kind of like, you know, just stupid sort of like, you know, fuck Bush, you know, fuck Reagan. You know, and I mean, even when Reagan was around, I wasn't even politically active. I, know if I, I had no idea in college about anything political. You know, I, I always liked the hippies and what they stood for in the music, but I was not activated. So I didn't become activated in, in an intelligent way until I took that gig at Air America. I showed up at Air America with, you know, a, a book, you know, The American Government for Dummies. I had that book because I didn't even know how legislation worked. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't pay attention in school. I, I was not educated. And then you sort of get on, you start to get it. You can't get it unless you're in it. You know, I mean, some people when they're younger learn about it and it's fascinating to them, but not me. And then when I started to get it and then all of a sudden you, you get sort of involved with, you know, tactics and how legislation works and which senators are doing what and which congressmen are doing what, who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. And then you realize, like, and sometimes there's not a lot of difference between good guys and bad guys and what's the real point here. And then you start to realize, like, you know, all these people that pay lip service to doing things, rarely do they do anything. And that, the, you know, the people like you who are union organizers or people operating on a grassroots level to make change on a local or community basis are the, really the only heroes in the goddamn equation. And you start to realize, who are all these bullshitters and that's it well that's all they are they're bullshitters that pay lip service to a point of view that just placates people who think like them you know fuck that i want to be one of those guys and so then it's a, <laughs> your 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 comedy sort of you consciously became much more introspective or reflective right. and, and vulnerable right partly to sort of re- recalibrate yourself after that period well, i think to actually access my true self so the question that i've had is it seems to me that that even though you're not actively engaging in that world, that that the way that you're trying to access your true self comedically yeah. is consistent with lefty political values. I think so, but I think like also it's it's consistent with you know. Uh, and I'm not trying to claim you. Let, let, let me. T- no, no, that's all right. I don't. I don't, this, I don't this, mind. This is what sort of like I. I mean, I don't particularly give a shit about Democrats, but when I became politicized and first became an activist you know there's this aspect when you're a newly politicized young person of like you know this is all bullshit we will tell the people the truth right and then you get out there and you tell the people the truth and you realize that people are way more wounded than you thought they were and that just giving them the right statistics is not going to cause the revolution you know right and so i feel like um, in the activist world we sort of don't have a good purchase on like we have a very mechanistic view of human psychology in the context of thinking about social change and trying to figure out how to address the ways people are scared and isolated and confused and, you know, Mm. anxious and uh, mistrustful or whatever. 
and I feel like defeated and defeated and uh, there's a long list <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and I feel like your comedy really addresses that I think I do speak to you know a, 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 an intelligent sensitive person that 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 has a, a sort of you know they feel a little isolated and a, a little aggravated and a little misunderstood you know people like me there I don't know that there's millions of them but but I, I think that you know the people that would you know, be attracted to righteousness along those lines are certainly people I speak to. And, and I think that by being honest, you know, but there's also that conflict of, of well, you, you know, a lot of times there's a, there's a, a, a real selfishness at the core of righteousness that, you know, that there's a, there's a self kind of a, a self-justifying, self-promotional element to strident political opinion, and, you know, I started to notice that, you know, within the liberal camp uh, in their very fractured and interesting, you know, different boutique causes and, you know, that whole right. bit of business. You know, the, the amount of tolerance one has to exhibit for the big tent uh, becomes a little counterintuitive to comedy yeah. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so, y- 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 the, you know, I, do, I, I think you're right. I think that I'm in a constant battle between... You know, self-absorption, uh, self-centeredness, and righteousness, and I, I think that you know, as time goes on, that I think that dialogue may come come back to me because, you know, I I've sort of gone through this evolution, you know, with the podcast and with how I'm expressing myself now that is completely sort of self-involved, and and I know that to the point where I I don't even you know I don't even use things in my stand-up like you know how everybody does this or like right guys or white girls or aren't we all like this because I know I'm t- I'm speaking specifically about me and that if people relate to it then that's good. But there's got to, you know, I'm going to have to grow out of that. Well, like, I right. think... Go ahead. Your, your audience doesn't need to be prompted to relate to you. No, I know. But there, like I said, it, it is a, a, a specific, you know, there, it is not a huge audience. And, and I do assume that, you know, I have things to share, you know, from, from an intellectual point of view that, you know, I think more people could relate to. I just had to spend a few years finding my heart in, in myself. And I think that because of the podcast and because of you know, the, the evolution of what I've done and talking to people and, 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 and dealing with certain issues and problems that, and because of the relevance of the podcast, which I didn't anticipate, I think I have finally achieved some, um, some amount of self-esteem that I never had, you know, just by being validated, Mm -hmm. which is, I don't think selfish. I think that's, that happens. I don't know that, you know, that I, I feel like I, I am putting something out there that, that does help people and that does entertain people and does, you know, educate people. You know, I'm not claiming to be the educator, but, you know, my conversations seem to bring people a lot of things that I never anticipated could ever happen, you know, in a lot of different ways. And so I, I feel like my heart is full of that stuff. And, and it's given me a, a pride and a sense of self that's relatively, you know, genuine. So after a certain point, I, I've been really actively struggling with this. Like, you know, I've got to, like, not unlike saying that I'm not going to talk about politics anymore, at some point I have to say, well, I've got to limit the amount that I talk about myself. Because you know, as many people that get off on it are completely annoyed by it and just find it unbearable and fast forward to it. Well, and you, you know, like over the years, you sit in the back of a comedy club and you see sort of the waves of comics come up and you could sort of be, pick out like, oh, there's the, there's the Hedberg wave, there's the Attell wave, yeah. you know. And I feel like we're sort of in the midst of, from my perspective, a a, a Marin Louis wave, yeah, of people like a lot more dicks and Louis. Uh, <laughs> a lot more, a lot more dicks will show up at the end of jokes. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, what's what's 
inter- what's striking about it is that people trying to be honest and reflective and vulnerable, but there's a sort of moment of like, like I, I feel like suddenly everybody's talking about feeling bad about themselves in the way that you feel bad about yourself. Yeah. It's like everybody's fucked up like Marin, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, well, I mean, the, without, it, without necessarily the craft that you've built over many years yeah. to, to deliver it. Well, I don't know, like, you know, you know, I don't, I can't identify my style that much. I, I see people do impressions of me. When James Adomian does it, but it's not like I don't know that it's a necessarily effective comedy style to uh, to mimic. You know, Louis he has a very specific sort of like I'm uh, going to to the place and then I'll do that. I will do that and then uh, I'll come over here and then there's this happens. Like he's got a a way of phrasing, and I I don't know that I can necessarily identify my tone, but uh, but I think the spirit of what I do is is something like when comics say like you know. You know, they want to be like me or, or they want to know what I, you know, or they, they aspire to that. I think it's only the, the sort of realness of it. Like, you know, the one thing that, like, even watching Louis' most recent special, I'm, I have a hard time with, with staying calculating and, and, and sort of being deliberate in, in how I present a bit. Uh, and when I do it, I'm very impressed. And there's an argument to be made that I should do it more. Like, I have applied a lot of time and effort to make bits work. And I never used to do that. I would just wing it. And, and just through repetition, they'd find their way. But there's a responsibility to being a comic that I think is... You know, Louis is, you know, uh, a master at and also a great e- e- executor of that, you know, to sort of like, you know, do a, a solid hour every year. And, and you know, when you watch his last special, they're, they're, it's very deliberate. It's it's very much like, you know, these are the jokes I've crafted. I, I know where this hand goes now. I know where I'm going to move this. And, you, you know, like he's clearly fully taken the responsibility of being the biggest comic in the country at this point in time. I don't know that for me, like I, I, I'm a little rough around the edges and I don't know that if that's out of, uh, you know, insecurity or, or just that like, I need something else from it. Like I, I still need more than a laugh. I need, like, I need to feel connected to an audience in a, in a, in a deep emotional way that I don't know is really their job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I mean, to me, like what part of what, I see as the, the most sort of inspiring and the biggest lesson from your stand-up is that all of the comedy is based on, I mean, it's what you said about the realness, that there's no, like, there's no joke tricks, you know, yeah. that it's there that there are real situations of things that actually happen to you yeah. and how you felt about it or what you thought or how you actually reacted, and you're disciplined about not being like, and now we need to misdirect, and now we need to like, blah, 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 is like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I don't do a lot of that, and I've always been hard on myself about it. There are tricks in terms of like, I know where laughs are, you know what I mean? And I know, you know, I build things, and I've become more, um, in, you know, more uh, disciplined about it because I, I'm doing longer bits. But if you watch me on Letterman or any of those things, you know, I know how to do jokes, and, I, and they're still in my style. But I've always been really hard on myself that I'm not more lyrical, or I don't think of a better word, or you know, the, you know or I don't you know construct you know those those things, those uh, you know kind of like you know roundabout ways of getting the things that are funny and Rabelaisian, you know, like you know Patton sort of inventing sad people so he can create a theater of pain. You know, I, I don't, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of hard on myself about that, but there's an urgency to what I do. And, 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 you know, within that urgency, you know, I have found ways to, you know, to, to do it, 
to do it my way. I just, I don't, I, I don't ever think it's quite good enough or big enough, <laughs> you know, to, to, uh, you know, to be entertainment for everybody. I'm Nato Green, and you're listening to the Nato Sessions. Today's program features stand-up comedian, podcaster, and actor Mark Marin. For more information about the NATO sessions and to receive new podcasts as they're released, go to 3200stories.org. The other sort of in, in the comedy world, certainly at my low level, that they're like the big conversations happening about, about you know, that's partly sparked by you and Louis is about the whole direct-to-fan DIY that kind of thing yeah. and there's sort of endless opportunities to put out content for free as a yeah, comic right and i'm sort of curious about how you've thought about the the business model associated with the podcast oh well you know it was like the business model was not a plan i you know i'm not a businessman you know so you know when we started doing the podcast i just needed to keep busy and and, and try to you know put some out in the world and then all of a sudden you have all these listeners and you're like well we should be doing something and, you know, no one really knew how to make money with podcasts. And me and my partner, like uh, my business partner, where uh, I forget that that word, you know, has now been integrated enough for people to go, oh, it's his lover is helping him. Um, we were like, well, we got to do something. And there was a lot of ways, you know, it was all trial and error that we built a small business out of the podcast. It was really, you know, once we, you know, our big plan was once we hit a certain number, we'd start selling episodes you know, back episodes, you know, close down a gate and then offer them for sale and see which one stuck. But that became sort of a chore in that in order to sell episodes, you can do it on a personal site, which you're not going to have a hard time drawing traffic to, or you can do it on iTunes, which means you have to partner up with an aggregator or a label to make them available as albums. And there's a percentage cut. So, you know, right around the time we were you know, starting to do that, you know, kind of monetize through selling episodes you know, our server partnered up with us for an app. So that original business model was really, at the very beginning, it was just taking donations and sending people a T-shirt to sort of, you know, get, you know, keep, to, to earn something from it. And people were very supportive initially, and we did okay with that. And there still are some, uh, some donations that come in on a monthly basis. And then when we got a catalog, we partnered up with the server to, to, to do an app. Lipson partnered up with us to do an app. And then what we would do, the way that the, the, the podcast works now in terms of monetizing just the podcast was that, you know, the first, the most recent 50 are always available for free. So for six months, all episodes are free. And you have to do that, in my mind, to keep building an audience. Because if you put a gate on it and right. you, uh, you have to pay for an access to the podcast, how do new people come? So... Once we got a catalog, we were able to do it this way. So, you know, the most recent 50 are always free. And if you want the others, you can stream them for, you know, nine bucks or eight bucks to upgrade to the premium app. And then, you know, advertising started to come around once the, you know, uh, you know, po- you know radio is dying. So a lot of the radio advertisers are coming to podcasting. But also because of, you know, the profile of my show, you know, I get specific people that would like to be part of the show, you know, record labels, you know, some TV shows and things like that. Um, you know, so we, we started selling ad, uh, you know, ad spots and we have a rate sheet and we, you know, we have a certain amount of real estate on each show that's available and we do good with that. Merch brings in a little bit of money. Um, but you know, between the app and ad sales is, you know, and then it all also 
I mean, a significant part of it has been it's, it's driven uh, your live shows. Yeah, I do all right. You know, I'm not selling 2,000 seats, but I'm selling, you know, four to 700 in places, some places. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, definitely people come. And because, um, you know, sort of I, I feel like the we're in this period of flux where, like, I know that you didn't feel like you were successful before the podcast, but uh, that you started with some level of platform and reach and exposure when you started the podcast. And the people who've been most successful at turning these self-produced things. And I think we're sort of in this period of like experimentation of people trying to figure out how to build that from the ground up. I don't know. You know, when I started it, you know, all I had was a very limited comedy following and, you know, a very political radio following. And I was, you know, in my mind, taking a big risk, you know, in a new medium, I didn't know. All we knew was we, you know, we were committing to a schedule and we were committing to good equipment. And because my partner is a producer, you know, it, it really became about like, you know, this thing, there's no reason for audio to sound shitty ever. So, you know, what we knew was that, you know, we were going to produce this thing properly with good equipment and we were going to deliver it on a regular schedule no matter what. Monday and Thursday, we've never missed a Monday and Thursday with a new show ever, you know, in the, in the three and a half years we've doing it. So our commitment was... This is going to be professionally done audio and delivered on this schedule. So that was all we committed to. Outside of that, I was, you know, I started out by alienating my political following. So, you know, when we finally had like, you know, 14, you know, I don't even remember what episode it was, but, you know, the journey from, you know, 6,000 downloads to 300,000 downloads, you know, had a lot to do with, you know, uh, you know, with guests, with evolving the show, but, but, and also with consistency. I mean, you know, with this type of relationship that you build on an audio level, it's a very intimate thing. It's a very unique thing. There's nothing like it. You know, people listen to it alone. They're in their car. They're on at the gym. They build a personal relationship with you and there's nothing you you can't manufacture that. You know, a person, who the hell knows why one person talking on a mic is more appealing than another person? I don't know. You can't make it up. But the only thing you can do is be there every week. Right. And, you know, it's people that, you know, they, they use shitty snowball mics or they all sit around talking on, you know, one mic. And, you know, it sounds like they're in a, you know, whatever. There's just no excuse for bad sound and for inconsistency. Because you can't, you can't build. Like, if you're like, well, we put one up, and then, you know, we put another one up a few weeks later, but then we haven't done one in a few months. It's like, well, what are you expecting to happen if you can't be there when people expect you to be there? If they can't look forward to the next one? Or if it doesn't sound good? Right. Uh, so, I have one more question. Yeah. Uh, my, my mom heard you on Fresh Air, mm-hmm. and she called me up, and she said, he is such a sweet man. And, you know, I don't know why our relationship is so difficult. I'm such a better mom than his, his mom was. <laughs> um, uh, with you and your mom? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then she said, you know, he's going to be a great father. Uh, so I wanted to hear some about how you're preparing to be a father. Well, I have to start um, putting sperm in her. Yeah. So I, that, that, that part of the preparation hasn't really started I, yet. I, I, I want to – I made this mistake uh, where my wife was pregnant, and it wasn't until – the like the day before the babies came out that I didn't I realized like oh something's gonna happen after the babies come out like, yeah. I spent so much time being like yeah yeah the bir- getting to the birth and I was like oh I have to prepare to be a fucking parent you know yeah well I feel like you know I'm yes you, know, you know sadly and also gladly I'm at an age where like 
you know, I, I'm, I'm, I can, I think my heart is capable of dealing with this. And, you know, and I've been spending some time with babies and, you know, I, I think maybe hopefully, you know, if I can continue working without having to kill myself that, you know, I feel like I'll have the time to show up for it, you know, for as long as, you know, I'm entitled to remain alive on the planet. And I don't think I could have done that at all in another time. You know, you just really hope that you, know, you can support the family, you know, because what we do is not always that consistent. So, you know, my biggest fear is, you know, revolve a bit around that. But like in terms of, you know, being responsible enough to, to take care of a child or having enough of an open heart to, to, uh, to selflessly love them, yeah, I think I'm I'm getting there. Um, so the the moment for as a as a parent and a comic, the, mm. I mean, the, sort of there's there is a there's a I feel like there's a moment of truth, mm. which is like you. It's it's frightening how much you love your own kids, right? Mm. And then you are heading out to work again. You're going on the road or whatever, and your kid says, "Daddy, don't go." Yeah, and like how you deal with that feeling. Yeah. You know, I, I, so I'm curious if you thought about preparing for that particular. Well, I said to her, I said, you know, like, I'm just hoping that, you, you know, that I can, you know, work in media a bit to where, like, I do not want to be one of those guys. You know, my biggest fear is really to be one of those guys that has no choice but to go out on the road, you know, nine, ten months a year. They have no choice. Like, I think that's one of the reasons I've avoided these type of responsibilities was that, you know, like, I don't, didn't know whether or not, you know, there was any possible way for me to be an effective parent, you know, being constantly frightened by, you know, not being able to raise one, you know, or to be there for them. That's my biggest fear is that like, you know, how I'm preparing for that is like, well, I'd like to work in television. I'd like to have a gig where, you know, I don't have to do that all the time. Yeah. Uh, and just go out for special things, you right. know, like you know, a couple weeks a year, or a couple maybe a couple weekends a month, you know, like not, you, you know what I mean? I just like I like I've always been uncomfortable, you know, working in shitty comedy clubs um, because like I never felt like they were really built for me, <laughs> you know. Uh, I always felt like I was a stranger trying to entertain people that when inherently you know not really understand me. And now that, like, you know, I can still perform for anybody, and I think I do a better job of it now, even if people don't know me. But now that, like, you know, I'm starting to find an audience, I just hope I can hold on to them and that they'll, they'll somehow support me for the rest of this time I spend on this planet. Uh, I, I think death is a good place to end. Good. I'm, I'm with you on that. I don't think we have much choice in it. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thanks, man. The NATO Sessions is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and its online venue, 3200stories.org. David Kwan edits and produces the program, and Dan Wolf is the executive producer. Our theme music is by DJ Reel. Music at the break is by Smoking Section. I'm your host, NATO Green. Follow me on Twitter at NATO Green. Check out my stand-up comedy at The Business every Wednesday night at the Darkroom Theater in the Mission District. For more information about the NATO Sessions and to receive new podcasts as they're released, Go to 3200stories.org. Thanks for listening.